The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is... May Day, Friday, May 1st, 2020, 5 o'clock p.m. All right, we got weird news about our fearless leaders. Boris Johnson. Uh, we measure Forbes time at Boris Johnson's. Boris Johnson, uh, Forbes reported today, has just welcomed a son, as we knew. But how many children he has in total remains a mystery. Meanwhile, Fox News reports that North Korean defector turned lawmaker 99% sure Kim Jong-un is dead, but the New York Post reports that Kim Jong-un may be holed up with his 2,000-woman pleasure squad. We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, we're going to do something really unfun. We're going to talk about state finances. And we have a, a fun person in lieu of fun to talk about uh, state finances with. Seth Magaziner is the general treasurer of the smallest state with the longest name in the country, the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. Welcome to In Lieu of Fun. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I, um, as I said before we started, I have only a vague idea of what this show is, but um, <laughs> Kate and I have known each other since we were in college, and she has material that could end my political career. So here let's, I am. Let's start with what yeah. you've got on her <laughs> and what she's got on you, because, you know, you brought it up, man. This oh, is, man. So, it's, this we just were texting. Destruction, right? So, yes, mutually assured destruction. So we're Embarrassing not Kate's story. Go. Oh, You're allowed to tell like two. I gave you clearance on two stories, Seth. <laughs> like, <laughs> Which one? Those weren't very good, though. Which ones were uh, they? I like those ones. That was like I was training. Well, that was when we went to a fundraiser. At, yeah, we were at, oh, that's right. That when Bill funny. Clinton was there. Yeah. And, and Kate was training we for a marathon. At, yeah, we were sitting at the table. We were sitting at a table, I think, next to Bill Clinton and like a lot of fancy people. And it was like very fancy food. And we were like, I was 20, right? I, we yeah. think we're and, both- And training for a marathon. So you were hungry all the time and you ate like three steaks. You, you, <laughs> you ate other people's foods off of their plate. It was like- Did a you plate. eat off of Bill Clinton's plate? Like I ate off the person next to him's plate. Like I was like, is yeah. someone eating that? And I just like took it. Shamelessly. <laughs> <laughs> all no right. one ate it. I Embarrassing ate Seth story, go. Oh God. I was told not to tell any of these, but no, I don't know if I have any. What's, well, I actually totally do, but they're not appropriate. For, like, there's, um, all of them are mostly me being embarrassed. Oh, yeah. I had to tutor Seth in, in nutrition. He was taking nutrition um, his senior year. It was the only science class that he took. Yeah, I somehow managed to get all the way through high school and most of college without taking like a single science class. Yeah. Wow. Where so, did you go to high school? So there are no rules. You went to Milton. It's not even like a bad high school. It's a really good high school. Yeah. And and then I took like my first science class as a senior in college and had no idea what I was doing and would have failed if Kate had not helped me through. But like these are not good stories though. People are all Yes, but mad. I was really angry yeah. at you for not knowing anything about science. Like I was That's like true. you were you were like you were unusually angry that I didn't know like how molecules <laughs> worked. Like it offended you personally. You which, didn't know like an atom That's more was on different you than, than a molecule. Me, Anyways, it yeah. was like, it was like a very, I like, I was the angriest tutor in biology. Yeah. So anyways, yes, these are boring wow. stories, but we'll think in, of- In other them. words, I'm going to be, um, throughout the course of this, just giving you a tour of Rhode Island as well. Well, that's Block so Island. With the biggest heart. This is- That is about Block Island. This is, I think, it's also backwards, so it's hard for me to, I think this is Newport. Oh, really? is it? Yeah, see like the mansions and stuff, like the fancy. Oh, yeah. yeah, but oh yeah. 
at the, we all, the, we all middle. Live in the mansions cool. in Rhode Island. Oh, but a cool fact about Seth is that he's from Brist was born in Bristol and Bristol, Rhode Island, raised in Bristol, Rhode Island, and which is the longest can take longest Fourth of July parade. Patriotic town in the country. We have wow. the oldest. My dad is from Rhode Island, but not from really? Bristol. Yeah. yeah. My Bristol dad is has from the oldest Woonsocket. Oh, Woonsocket is awesome. Woonsocket. No. Is <laughs> <laughs> First of all. You I'm have constitutionally to say that obligated to love every city and town in Rhode Island, but no, Woonsocket's great. It's got a great culture. It's it's a you know a French Canadian town, and like there's still like people there. Oh yeah, like there's still people there who speak French as a first language. It's it's a very culturally rich city. Well, yeah. my 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 the father's family were Ashkenazic Jews, uh, not French Canadians, and um, and my dad. Uh, 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 Went to classical high school in Providence, and yeah. uh, but is a is a Rhode Island native. Nice. Um, we knew a ton of people from classical. Yeah, I have a classical T-shirt as well. <laughs> so, how bad is the fiscal situation in Rhode Island? <laughs> I mean, it's been better. It's been better. No, I mean, listen. Um, these are obviously challenging times and unprecedented times that we're living in. And I don't know that there's ever been a time in the history of our country where economic activity slowed down as sharply and as quickly as it has now. And the speed of it is what's really amazing, right? So, you know, we're probably already past great recession levels of unemployment, but it took several months for the unemployment rate to, to build up during the great recession. And it took several months for you know, state deficits to manifest themselves. And, and so to have a situation where economic activity just grinds to a sudden halt the way it has is, is really unprecedented. And so, you know, from a state budget point of view, all of our revenue or a large portion of our revenue just dried up instantly. And it made for a very stressful situation in March and in early April in particular. And we're starting to work through it now and find solutions, but, um, but it's been it's been intense for sure. And so so yeah. before you go into that, what is Rhode Island's fiscal normalcy like? Like what percentage of state revenues comes from income taxes? What percentage of it comes from other stuff? Yeah. Federal monies. Like what does your normal asset picture look like? Yeah. So about half of our revenue comes from the federal government. The other half our largest sources of state generated revenue in order are income tax, sales tax is number two, and then uh, lottery and casino revenue is number three. And so for us, it was sort of the perfect storm. Income tax is our biggest source of state generated revenue. And, you know, usually that means that March and April are big revenue months for us. And with the extension of the income tax filing deadline, that disappeared. And then sales tax, obviously, we took a big hit and, you know, the casino shut down. And so our three largest sources of revenue basically dried up all at once. But there's, I mean, states all over the country are dealing with similar things, right? Um, you know, I was talking with some people I know who are state officials in Oklahoma where they, you know, they watch the price of oil and like that has a big impact on their state revenue. And so they're really hurting. But like to have, I mean, on a percentage basis, I think it's too early to know whether this decline in revenue, how it'll compare to other recessions, but like the the speed with which it happened was just totally unprecedented. So how typical is Rhode Island? I mean, I, I, I kind of want to use this conversation as a, you know, Rhode Island, we're talking about Rhode Island because that's where you happen to be the state treasurer. But to what extent is Rhode Island a typical state for purposes of this conversation that you can kind of, I mean, yeah, it's small, but the, the problems are basically no different. I mean, you're going to have more casino revenues and less oil and gas revenues. You're going to have, you know, more like different states have different, different revenue pictures. But to what extent should we assume that this is playing out 50 times everything we talk about is basically happening in every state. 100%, 100%. I mean, I, I talk with other state treasurers 
multiple times a week and we're all facing the same situation like just just really significant fiscal stress all over the country and you know at a time when we're also being called on to address a significant public health crisis and to spend money on health and safety and all that i mean you know the in a lot of ways the administration has basically said hey states it's on you you're on your own to go and find ventilators and find ppe and find, you know all of this stuff and so you know states we're having to bid against each other for medical supplies which just drives up the cost of these supplies that's completely insane like that's it's, just i hadn't i hadn't thought about that that like oh, yeah. that this would put that this would create like a 50 state bidding war that's exactly what's happened. That's exactly what's happened. Like instead of the federal government using its massive purchasing power and its massive authority to order factories to make things, and instead of doing that and procuring equipment and then sending it to the hotspots where it's needed the most, they basically said, oh, states, it's up to you. And the states are bidding against each other for like life-saving medical supplies. And it's especially hard for small states like Rhode Island, right? Because we don't have as much purchasing power. And so we're really having to hustle to buy like surgical gowns and masks and all kinds of stuff. And we're competing with New York and California and Italy and the rest of the world. It's insane. Can you like pool, can you like team up with like neighboring states to kind of like get percentages, right? Like, why aren't you talking to mass like and like teaming up with mass and like yeah. you mass in Maine might be able to like pool more resources and then split them based on like the number of cases or? There's some of that happening, but it's it's tough, right? Um, because I think each governor is finding, I mean, each governor would say it's their responsibility to take care of their own state first, right? And so there's some cooperation going on, but to be honest, like, I think there's more cooperation happening around discussions about when to reopen things than there is about purchasing um, at this at this stage. Um, do you but have it's all any totally haphazard. Are you reopening? Having, yeah, in the reopening conversations. Not as much. I mean, I'm, I'm in the loop on them because they have a fiscal impact that we have to estimate and track, but you know we leave the healthcare decisions to the healthcare experts, which, as you know from my college science experience, um, I am not. No, you're not. So, <laughs> um, so I, Ben, do you have a question? I have no, no, otherwise. No. Go ahead. Okay, I'm just. We were talking about this on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and you were saying we were like just talking about how different states have treasurers and some don't have treasurers at all. And I, I don't expect you to necessarily know the answer to this, but one, like, what what are like kind of the determinate? What were like? Why do certain states? Why did they make that choice? Like, what's the pluses and minuses of having a designated person as the general treasurer? And then, like, two, like, how is is that playing? Like, is having a separate treasurer playing out differently for the purposes of something like COVID? Like, if like New York, all of it is just the governor, right? Like, all of the but like all of that is just controlled by Cuomo. Like, what yeah. what does it mean if there's separate if there's separate like someone who's a treasurer versus someone who's something else. Yeah, and maybe really you should pause, question. maybe you should pause before you answer that and explain what, what the treasurer of the state actually does. Yeah, these are good questions because um, it's not uniform at all. And, and like, nobody knows, right? Like, so when I was running for treasurer the first time in 2014, you know, we had a campaign and we were doing polls as you do in a campaign. And we were asking quite, you know, what do you want to see in a state treasurer? What's a, you know, a strong candidate for state treasurer look like to you? And then we kind of stopped and we said, well, let's just put in a question. What does the state treasurer do? Nobody knows, like nobody knows. So um, the answer is this, it, it, it really varies significantly from state to state. There are some states like Michigan and Massachusetts where it's a very expansive role and where they do everything from, you know, manage the state budget, run the lottery. In Massachusetts, the treasurer regulates gambling and alcohol and like marijuana for some reason. Um, and they have like hundreds and hundreds of employees. And then there are other states where there's like six employees and all they do is like manage the bank accounts. And so it really varies state to state. In Rhode Island, <clears throat> we're I'd say more toward the expansive end of the spectrum. So in Rhode Island, my responsibilities are to manage all the state's investments. So we manage the state pension fund, we manage 
um, you know, the state college savings program. We manage basically $15 billion of state assets. Um, state's cash, which again was close to running out, but now luckily for at least the time being, it's not. We manage the bonding, so like all the borrowing that the state does. Um, we're, we're basically like a, almost like a, um, a CFO, I guess, um, in Rhode Island. But do you, do you, are you responsible for the budget? No. So in Rhode Island, the budget is, is the governor and the legislature. Um, so I don't have as much of a role there. But again, like one of the things that's neat about being state treasurer is because the general public doesn't really know what the treasurer does, it's kind of a good platform to talk about any financial issue. So I'll, I'll certainly weigh in publicly and use my soapbox, you know, all the time about what I think should or shouldn't be in the budget. So uh, another question, um, uh, you said the state was about to run out of cash. Uh, I assume that was, you said in March and April, what, what happened and where did the cash infusion come from? I mean, I did, did somebody like, walk into Providence with like giant bags of cash and like pass them off to you in a parking yes. lot. And I count it every bill myself. Good, good. This is exactly I, I, what I expect out of Rhode Island. Because yeah. I really <laughs> want it to happen that way. They hide um, them in jars of tomato sauce. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we, we have money hidden all over the place. You just don't know about it. No. Um, so, uh, so again, so our biggest, our biggest source of state generated revenue was the income tax. And our, and our problem there was, is basically delayed, right? So we know that most of that income tax money is still gonna come in, but just not until July, but we need it now, right? So for that, for like revenue that we know is coming, it's just been delayed, we can borrow against that. And that's what we had to do. So we got authority. This was the first time it had been done in state history. Um, there's this like weird part of state law in Rhode Island that I didn't even know existed that nobody knew about that says if the legislature can't meet and there's a crisis, you can convene a disaster funding board that has four people on it. It's like the leaders of each chamber of the state legislature and those four people can give us the authorization to borrow money or to move money in order to deal with the crisis. And so that board convened, I think for the first time ever, and they gave us authority to borrow a few hundred million dollars. And so that's what we did. We, we borrowed some money against the income tax that's going to come in, in July. And then the second thing that came- What's um, the interest rate on like a couple hundred million dollars right now? Honestly, I mean, remarkably low, lower than my mortgage. It's, um, it's floating rate, but like in the, in the low to mid 1%, like between 1% and 2% range. Um, and then the other thing that happened is that finally, after a number of weeks, um, federal stimulus money started to come in. But th that is a whole, that's actually an interesting story. And that's something that we should talk about because the way that Congress designed the federal stimulus for states is frankly very unhelpful. And so we've got a lot of money sitting in an account right now and it's very hard for us to use it. Um, but that also has helped to some extent. It could help a lot more if they would loosen the rules, but. Let's come to that in a minute, but we have a question from Tony Kava. Tony, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, guys. And I'm, I am looking forward to hearing um, Seth's uh, comments about reopening. I live in Washington State and have a lot of faith in our governor, Inslee, and I'm in no rush to get back myself. I don't, I don't feel like people should be forced to get back. Um, having said that, my question is about earlier today, I think you, you tweeted about the census and you said that the best thing you could do uh, to help respond to COVID-19 was to answer the census. So my question to you, and not to get too political or conspiratorial about it, but with Wilbur Ross in charge of that, um, you know, do you have confidence that the census will be counted fairly um, is there, I have a question to everyone, is there an IG in place to uh, monitor the census and the count? And do the states, Rhode Island and maybe some other places have any sort of strategy in place to be sure that the, the census is fairly counted? So um, 
first, like, that's a great question. But first of all, I want to ask Seth, why did you did? Why do you think if you do that, um, that the best way people can respond to COVID-19 is to yeah. answer the census? I think I said one of the best ways, just to be clear, but it is, but it is, okay. so I, I, I won't commit to best way, but it is a very good way. Um, because the census is, is one of the ways that, you know, federal funding is allocated, right? Like billions and billions of dollars of economic development money, healthcare, um, uh, you know, healthcare funds, uh, education funding, I mean, is, is allocated like based on census results, right? And so again, for a small state like Rhode Island, I should also mention, you know, Rhode Island, we're right on the cusp where we may or may not lose a house seat, you know, depending on how the census turns out. And so for Rhode Island in particular, it makes a very significant difference in how much funding we can receive, you know, that we have a high response rate in the census. And that would be, if my, my, my house geography is not great, would go take you from two to one? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's a that's a big representational difference if it happens. Yeah, it is. And so, you know, we we have spent a fair amount of money in Rhode Island, you know, that was in the state budget marketing the census basically because the federal government is as you know pulled way back on actually marketing it. And in particular, you know, we're worried that you know, people in immigrant communities are going to be undercounted, certainly undocumented communities are going to be undercounted and you know, the census is, as you all, well, you all know the constitution well. I mean, it's it's every person, it's not necessarily every citizen, right? And so it's really important that everyone be counted. And so we've, we've put a lot of effort behind that in Rhode Island, but we're worried about it. And, 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 you know, obviously the virus doesn't help. Right, although it does make people easier to find. Maybe, yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I think when people are less mobile, it's easier to identify people and track people down. And we're all less mobile right now. Oh, um, yeah. There's like people are not moving out of state. But but on the other side of that, like, well, I guess that's true. But like, mm, I don't know. Like, I feel like most people are filling this out online, right? Yeah, but then like, you know, census workers are, I assume, going to still have to go knock door to door and... How's that going to be received in an area when people, an era when people are trying to social distance? Like, I don't know. Right. Yeah. You just yell from like eight, eight feet outside the house and throw oh, some baby. rocks. Oh, <laughs> in this house. So, so talk to us about let's let's nerd out on the. Oh, hold problem. on. He didn't he didn't answer Tony's question about whether he you're, trusted. Oh, you're the, right. The census. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to know the answer ahead. to that. Uh, what I don't do you know think? if I'm qualified to answer that. I mean, they better. Like, they better. I like, you know, th th there's nothing that like would be too terrible that we could not possibly ma imagine this administration doing it, or or like, you know. So like, could they try to fudge the numbers? I mean, in normal times, we'd say no, but this is not a normal administration. So I think I think this is almost a time in our history where you have to be paranoid, right, about what about what the what the White House is going to do. I don't know. No. So let, let's talk about that money that Congress appropriated that's sitting in an account that you can't access without some kind of relaxation of the rules. Uh, number one, what is that? What's driving that situation? What are the rules that are creating that situation? And number two, uh, you know, in Washington, Democrats are talking about a fourth round of of appropriations aimed at state and local government how important is that to you guys and what happens if mitch mcconnell doesn't do it yeah and this is this is a big deal and this is something that i think just perfectly encapsulates how stupid the republicans in congress can be so um so in the CARES Act, which was the big federal stimulus, the, the third stimulus bill with the big one, the CARES Act back in March, they allocated $150 billion to states and to cities to help with the COVID-19 crisis, which is great. Not enough, but great. Um, but they said, and well, they were, the Congress was silent on it in the legislation, but the administration interpreted it to say, 
that that money could only be used for expenses related to the virus and not to offset lost revenue. And so we can use it to pay for ventilators and hospital beds and all of that. But our biggest fiscal challenge at the state level, and this is not just Rhode Island, this is like every state, the biggest fiscal challenge is not increased expenses, it's lost revenue. It's that lost income tax and sales tax. And if you're Oklahoma, you know, oil revenue or whatever. And so, you know, like in Rhode Island, for example, we were given one and a quarter billion dollars, which for Rhode Island is a lot of money, but we're not gonna spend one and a quarter billion dollars on ventilators. Like what we need is to be able to offset our lost revenues. And so, you know, the worst thing that we could do in a recession where we likely already have 15 to 20% unemployment, like the worst thing that we could do is force states and cities to lay off millions of teachers and firefighters and, you know, office clerks and, and just put more people on unemployment. Like that's the worst thing you could do economically. Not to mention to sit on large caches of money that could right. be injected into the economy. Right. And so, you know, Democrats are pushing for more money for states and cities, but are also pushing for more flexibility in how we can use it. Let us use it to offset our lost revenues so that we can maintain a baseline level of service and don't, you know, play these games and say, well, you can only spend it on increased revenue, uh, increased expenses and not lost revenue. And when I say Democrats, I mean, I should say in Congress, right? Because at the state level, I talk to state treasurers, as I said, all the time, and like Republican state treasurers get it, Republican governors mostly get it. And so, you know, I think Congress is eventually going to do the right thing. Like, I think Mitch McConnell is going to cave. And I think even he's signaled that a little bit. What, but there's this kind what, of dance going on where now they're trying to figure out, well, what can we get for it? Right. And Trump is already saying, oh, yeah, we'll we'll give states that flexibility if you, you know, are more restrictive on immigration and like, you know, stuff like that. We're in the game playing phase of this. Fair enough. Um, we have a question from Jeff Brancato. If I got your name right, if I didn't, I apologize. The floor is yours. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, you did get it right. So maybe this is not quite so germane given the scope of your responsibilities, Seth, but can you talk a little bit more about the financial situation for K through 12 education and public higher education in Rhode Island? Yeah. Um, so K through 12, again, there was some stimulus money that was allocated. So I think K through 12 funding should be an easier problem to solve. Um, you know, like school districts are having to spend money to transition to remote learning, right? Like buying laptops for kids or tablets or, you know, whatever hotspots if, if their families that don't have um, internet access. And most of that should be reimbursable by the feds. So like most of that I think is okay. Um, higher ed is a much tougher problem, right? Um, so uh, colleges and universities have already had to reimburse for room and board for the spring semester, which for a lot of them is like a big chunk of money. And if students can't come back in the fall, like that's, it's deadly. Like it's absolutely deadly for colleges and universities. And so um, again, there was some funding in the CARES Act for universities, not a ton. And, and so, yeah, like I, I do worry about it. I mean, speaking of Brown, Kate and my alma mater, um, uh, Christina Paxson, who's the president of Brown had an op-ed in the New York Times, I think yesterday, where she basically said, like students are going to have to come back in the fall and colleges are going to have to find a way to deal with it, whether it's getting rid of large lectures or whether it's, you know, certain housing arrangements to like promote social distancing. But, you know, the Browns and the Harvards of the world might be fine, but a lot of other colleges, if, if they can't bring students back in the fall, it's, it's going to be bad. What about the public universities, Seth? Same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, same. I mean, unfortunately, like like nationally, and you all know this better than I do, because because you all are, are Kate at least works for a, a college, but like, you know, state support for public universities nationally has declined a lot, like over the last few decades. And so, University of Rhode Island, maybe ten percent of their budget comes from the state, 
Oh, is that true? I didn't realize yeah. that it was that low. Yeah, and and like much of the rest of the country, even like the big, like the really big public university systems, like the you know the California system, like maybe it used to be sixty percent, but now it's probably half that, right? And so they're all relying more and more on tuition and room and board, and um, and so it's it's scary stuff. My dean, for what it's worth, my dean just sent an email. My the dean of the law school, anyway, not the university, just kind of like to all faculty email that was just kind of like there are three options: we don't come back and we do online teaching. We come back and everything's normal. Oh, hey, look, it's Brown, uh, Van Wickle Gates. Uh, or the third option, and he was like, by far the most likely option is what Seth just said, which is that everyone has to come back and basically the schools have to figure out a way right. to teach within the parameters that are set out by the government for social distancing. And to like uh, try to prevent all of those kids from going to parties somehow. Yes, well, that seems right. good luck with that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Seriously, though, like that's you know. Yeah. Well, you can social distance and hotbox an entire hallway. <laughs> like, Even though we went to college together, like our college experiences were not the same. Just <laughs> that's very. I don't know how to <laughs> interpret that, but that's because I didn't know either of you then. Yeah, I know, very different. Um, but I, I, we have a ton of questions, Ben. Do you want to like kind of work through any of them or? Sure. Who do you want me to bring in? Um, I love John's question. I think that's good. All right, John, it is. The famous John Bordeaux. Uh, the floor is yours. Famous as a stretch. Thank you, sir. Uh, Senate leader uh, suggested that states should simply go bankrupt or consider that as an option. Uh, and almost immediately I was reading things, I'm a layman here in terms of the law, that that's not even a legal path. So I guess my question is, can you kind of dig through that? What, what is legal? What is real about the bankrupt option? And if so, does it really give the courts the ability to like restructure pension funds and otherwise second guess state budgets? I mean, where are we on this? Yeah, no. So, I mean, I'm less of a lawyer than anyone else on this. So you guys feel free to jump in. But like, as it stands right now, states can't go bankrupt. There's no part of like the bankruptcy code that provides for state bankruptcies. States Those can cities go. can. Cities can and have. States can become insolvent and like not be able to pay their bills, but they can't, there's no mechanism for like a structured bankruptcy. I mean, could Congress create that? Sure. And I think what he was hinting at is if you create that, then maybe you can do things like cut pension liabilities or whatever else, you know, but to me, like, this is something that has been, I think like ideologically, like sort of a, a wish of the far right for a long time. And I think it's not going to happen and it shouldn't happen. Like, look, at the end of the day, states are spending money to address the crisis. States have lost revenue. You can measure how much revenue they've lost. The federal government has the ability to print money. States don't. And if the federal government is fine supporting airline companies and cruise ship companies and whoever else, they should support states too, at least for the duration of the crisis. And that's a better solution than you know, having massive cuts to services and employment in the middle of a recession. So most states are not allowed, not only can they not print money, they're constitutionally barred or statutorily barred from running deficits. Uh, is Rhode Island one of the small number of states that actually is allowed to run a deficit or do you guys have to close your books at the end of every year? So we have to pass a balanced budget every year. And so you know, right? Like if, if, if Congress doesn't help us, then the next fiscal year, fiscal 21, we could be running a deficit, you know, well into the hundreds of millions of dollars. We would have to pass a budget this June with hundreds of millions of dollars of either cuts or tax increases, like under our constitution. So, you know- In other words, you, you can run the deficit but you have to account for it in the subsequent year and pass a bus budget that would address it? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so we have to, next year's budget, we have to pass a balanced budget and in order to end with a budget that's not balanced, the legislature would basically have to vote to do that. They would have to vote to accept the deficit. Otherwise, they would have to find a way to, the, the administration would have to find a way to close it. I don't know if that answers your question. Gotcha. But, yeah. 
No, very much so. So we are uh, going to take a very brief break from the gloom and doom of uh, state budgets and ask about physical injuries. Uh, Joel Woodward, the floor is yours. Sorry, it took me a moment there to get unmuted. Uh, so I, I'm noticing a, a curious bandage on an index finger. Um, is there a good story with that or? Charlie bit me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, there you have it then. <laughs> um, oh, hi, Joel. Yes. Um, well, this I think this finger is trying to leave the group. It's like staging a coup and trying to off itself so that it's not part of my left hand anymore. It's uh, this like, is the same finger that got four stitches the other day. Yeah, the stitches are right there on the knuckle. I had like sliced through my knuckle about four, about a, like 10 days ago and got four stitches. And then yesterday I was chopping garlic while on the phone with one of my students and giving him uh, free legal advice and just, uh, well, I won't go into it, but I don't have much of a fingernail on one side of my, uh, on one, on this finger anymore. Um, and I consulted with an ER doctor that I happened to have been on the show, perhaps. Um, and See, you should have done it on the show. We should have had a special episode. Kate gets emergency medical attention. Yes. Okay. Well, we can do that next time. I don't think many <laughs> people have the stomach for that. And also I might have like almost fainted trying to change the bandage this morning. So like, I, I don't know how much good TV there is if I just turn completely white and kind of keel over. So I'm, uh, I'm excited for it. <laughs> Seth would watch that. Seth's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, like we're all like, bring it on. So yeah. just for that, Seth, I'm sharing this picture. Yeah. Uh, there is a See, this is this is this is dangerous now this could end badly i know this could i'm throwing down yeah. i pre i you approved of this this is a picture of seth and i at 20 years old as babies uh that's i, uh, I gotta say that, seth that is recognizable seth. what seth is is recognizable i i am having trouble seeing you in that picture well that's because i'm disguised as a dinosaur ben i was going as a dinosaur <laughs> it's a really good costume uh yeah i don't think i look i don't think i look like that anymore anyways uh that's that's us as at the uh the RISD ball i think our junior year so in like 19 awesome. 19 years old um so our next question is from uh, Michael, AKA the Big Blue Blogger. Uh, and Big Blue, I, I assure you, I have saved you for last, uh, apropos of your uh, very kind message that you wanted to others to go first because you've gotten a lot of airtime recently. So feel guiltless about posing your question. Thank you, Ben, and I do appreciate getting more airtime. Um, Seth, I hope you'll forgive me for bringing up Hillary Care. I know you were barely out of diapers at the time, um, but your, your family does know a good bit about expanding access to health care and some of the associated political challenges. I was wondering from your current uh, position, how you read the situation at both the state and federal levels and uh, whether the pandemic might move the needle either way on Medicare, Medicaid, or single payer? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it has to, right? I, I think a couple of things. So first, um, something that hasn't been talked about a lot that I think is interesting is when Congress expanded unemployment benefits in the CARES Act, they made unemployment available for the first time to gig economy workers and self-employed individuals, contractors, people who typically aren't eligible for, um, for unemployment or for other, other employment-based benefits. And to me, that's sort of a recognition that the employer-based system of providing benefits, whether they're healthcare benefits or unemployment insurance or retirement, the employer-based model doesn't make as much sense in today's economy. Right. You know, this isn't like it used to be where you go and you work at the factory and you work at the same factory for, you know, 40 years and that's where you get your health care and that's where you get your pension and that's where you get your whatever. I mean, we live in an economy now where people are changing jobs all the time and a lot of people fall into these 
categories like gig economy workers that didn't used to exist in the past. And so this was the first time to my knowledge that Congress like proactively made this large group of people eligible for a benefit that they weren't eligible for before in, in unemployment insurance. And it's only temporary and it's only during the crisis, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, that was an acknowledgement that the employer-based model for the kind of the security net is not the wave of the future and is not sustainable, right? And so does that mean that we're going to have single payer healthcare tomorrow? Probably not. But I do think that the crisis could continue to nudge us along in that direction and provide more fuel to the, you know, sort of the, the movement toward um, not only in the healthcare space, but in other benefits as well, like in the retirement space, you know, a social safety net that is more inclusive of categories of workers that aren't included now, essentially. I'm kind of super interested in something which is just kind of, so I think that by, obviously I think that like then there was this huge need for like this lockdown, at least initially. There was absolutely not this kind of collective collective uptake at the beginning of March to get people to take this kind of, to take the virus seriously um, and to take precautions. Um, but just like as a public official and someone who deals with the, I mean, not, uh, I don't know how you want to answer this, but it's up to you. But like, how do you think that people are, do you think that people can follow instructions and like maintain social distancing and we can reopen the economy? Do you think that there is a collective, do you think that there's like something about putting the fear of God into people by really putting us on lockdown that like is the only thing that's going to keep people safe right now? And I don't mean to be paternalistic about it, but I think that there's been a certain amount of undeniable paternalism in kind of the, in like, in the policies that are happening, taking place right now, I'm just kind of very curious what the conversations are like when people are talking about how to institute new policies of like social distancing going forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak to how it's been elsewhere in the country. Like in Rhode Island, I think by and large, people have done a pretty good job of adhering to the guidelines, like not universally, but you know, by and large, like people aren't going out much, like there's a lot less car traffic outside my house than there usually is. You know, when you do go out, like people are wearing masks, people are being careful. Like I think by and large, like it's actually like, I've been kind of heartened by how quickly a large number of people have adapted their behavior. Um, we're a little bit worried about what's gonna happen when the weather gets nice right? Um, it's e especially being in New England, it's easy to stay holed up in your home when it's like cold and crappy outside, which is, you know, only like seven months a year here. But then those other five months are coming up. And so, you know, we'll see. Um, but, you know, I think- But one didn't of the you hear that sunlight is the best disinfectant for the COVID <laughs> virus, Seth? <laughs> right after drinking a pint of vodka? Yeah. But I, I mean, it's, it's like- I think it's starting to set in though that even as things like can start to open up in some ways, like we're not really gonna get back to normal for a long time. And I think that's psychologically very hard for all of us to wrap our heads around, but. For what it's worth, I was 100% wrong about this. Like I remember driving through Providence and waving to you even though you couldn't see me because I was on the highway. Yeah, and it was dark. <laughs> once again, you were driving through Rhode Island and you didn't call me. I, yes, I, I know. Sorry. <laughs> there was a crisis happening. Also, like shortly after I passed Rhode Island, your governor like stopped allowing like New Yorkers to come through Rhode Island and wouldn't let people through with license plates. So I got through in the this nick is, of time. Yeah, this is this is uh, revenge from 2003. Red Sox Yankees. You remember that one? I do remember. Finally that one. get to <laughs> New Yorkers out now. Yes, it's so, true. So how is Rhode Island government functioning at the senior levels? I assume you're not getting together. Are you going into an office at all? Are you uh, like, what's the, are, is it basically like every other complex organization It's functioning by Zoom meeting? Like what's the, what's the structure by which the elected officials of Rhode Island are actually operating? And follow yeah. up to that, which is like, are you are you more are you guys more concerned about like info security like information security and like 
security of like yes. all of your stuff than like you have been in the past. So, so yes to all of that. Um, yeah. So I, other elected officials and other kind of high level officials in Rhode Island and I, we, we talk almost exclusively via conference call and, you know, although to be honest with you, like a lot of our conversations were by call before as well. Like it's just faster. Right. Um, like like, before, it sounds so nice to be on conference calls instead of Zoom meetings. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm just like so sick of performative, like like yeah. on a Zoom meeting for hours. Um, yeah. So, you know, in our office and in, in the state treasury, we're 80% of our staff is working from home now. Um, and I go into the office probably a day a week. Um, and, you know, I, I'd say like, the elected officials and I like we're in touch with each other more frequently than we were in normal times for sure. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's like we're all busy and we're all as busy or busier than we have been in the past, but it's a different kind of busy because there's no events to go to. There's no, you know, ribbon cuttings or press conferences or like fundraisers. Like like the politicking is kind of on pause. Um and so it's so it's still busy. It's just different. Well, that brings us to a really good pivot point, which is that if the politicking is on pause, what are your elections looking like? Yeah, so we originally had our presidential primary um, in uh, mid-April. It's been delayed till June. And, you know, we're going to try to do a predominantly male ballot election. Um, Why not female and, ballot? And we'll see. Oh, See what I did there? I did. <laughs> I did. It's the dad jokes. That's good. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and we'll see how it goes. We're hopeful. I mean, we're not a state that has a strong vote by mail tradition the way uh, some other states do, but, um, you know, but maybe this will be the thing that changes that. Is there a commitment to it? I mean, if there's a, it's also not a state that has historically a lot of voter access problems, right? I mean, when you think of states with, you know, access to polls issues, I don't think of Rhode Island as one of them. Uh, is this going to be a rough transition for Rhode Island or is this really uh, you know where the voters are and there there aren't that many of them and there aren't that many jurisdictions there aren't that many precincts um, yeah. and so it's a relatively manageable transition or is there some reason to think this is going to be very hard we'll see I mean again it's uncharted territory so we're the second most densely populated state in the country and so I think that's why in-person voting was still very big here. It's just like, if you want to go to the polling place, it's like, it's a block away. Like no matter where you live in the state, your polling place is a block away, right? Cause we're all piled up on top of each other. And um, and so, you know, I think it's good in a way that we had a later primary and that both the Democrat and Republican nominations are essentially done at this point. So this will be a good dry run for us where the stakes aren't very high and you know, a practice run for the fall, but um, but it's uncharted territory, so we'll see how it goes. And since Rhode Island is not a competitive state for purposes of the presidential election, um, uh, are there major elections that are happening in 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 Rhode Island? I mean, obviously, the presidential election is a big deal, but it's also, you know the stakes for the state are relatively low since whether the, since it, it, it's not being seriously contested, what will, what are the major races that you guys are having in the fall, yeah. if there are any? All local. So none of the statewide elected offices are up, you know, we're not up this time. Um, when are you up? Two years? Yeah. Well, I'm term limited in two years. So oh, I was elected you are? in 2014, reelected in 2018. Yeah, I'm glad you've been following, by the way. Sorry. Real re in 2018, <laughs> and, and, and in 2022, I have to find a new job. So we'll we'll see what happens. But um, I have yeah. a research I have a research assistant position open. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I so, but it's interesting. It's, it'll be interesting to see how campaigning changes like this year, also, right? So, like, you know, for these local races in Rhode Island it's very retail, right? Like the way you campaign for state legislature in Rhode Island is by knocking on every door in your district four times and talking to people 
and doing stuff in person. And like, I don't know if that's going to be possible this time. So it'll be interesting to see how campaigning changes. And, and my, it might be a situation where like incumbents are advantaged because the challengers won't be able to do a lot of the things that challengers normally do. So if you were running a campaign right now and say you were on the ballot in the fall and you had to plan for a social distancing friendly campaign, what would you be thinking about as the modality of outreach that, I mean, obviously you're going to reach huge numbers of people within lieu of fun, but that wouldn't be an adequate campaign. Um, What would, what would you be focused on? Very challenging, right? I mean, and like you can see campaigns struggling to figure that out. Like Joe Biden right now is struggling to figure out how to run a presidential campaign from his basement. And, um, and so I, I don't know exactly. He's welcome, I mean, by the way, anytime to come on. on this, well, so, okay. So here's actually, this is what I was going to say next. Um, even before the crisis began, one of the things that I've been watching that I thought was interesting was sort of the Pete Buttigieg style of media outreach, right? Where his philosophy, and you know, he lost obviously, but I think he overperformed overperformed significantly, like overperformed, outperformed expectations. Wildly overperformed. And and part of like early on how he did that, I think is, is their philosophy was, we will do an interview with anyone, anywhere, no matter how big, how small or how crazy they are, right? And so, you know, early, early on, whether it was big stuff like Fox News or CNN or like random podcasts or random like, you know, YouTube shows or whatever, like they would just say yes to everything, which like a lot of campaigns, especially at that level, don't do that. A lot of them tend to be very cautious and like only want to put their candidate in front of friendly interviewers and that sort of thing. And, and so I do think that like this virtual campaign might, might make that approach more common where it's like, all right, you can't do events. You can't do rallies. You're sitting at home. You're literally going to go on every single show and podcast and whatever you can find, even if you're not really sure what it is or how it's going to go. Um, it's also sort of the Anthony Fauci approach to media too. Like he's everywhere. Right. And, and like, there's a strategy behind that. And so, you know, you might see other campaigns showing up online in places that they wouldn't normally in the past. I was also going to mention that one of Seth's uh, one of Seth's um, claims to fame at Brown was uh, that he was the president of the College Democrats, um, and so he's <laughs> and so Very obviously dirty. besides like being which always... was the right wing organization at Brown, right? Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. I was only part of the College Democrats for the free steak. I just want to be clear. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I went to Oberlin, right, where there were, I mean, there were college Democrats in the same way that there were, you know, there was like a, uh, uh, um, I, I don't know, it was, it, it, it would have been like having a rotary club at Oberlin, <laughs> you know, it was just, it was so not part of the culture of the place. I would say that the culture of the Dems was like, everyone was, so many people at Brown were liberal. But like the people at the Dems were political, like right? Like that was like kind of like the thing. Yeah. So like it was about like the people that, that like, and I would almost say <clears throat> I always describe this kind of as my upbringing too. Like I think that we came up, Seth. I mean, you came by politics, honestly. I mean, I did a little bit too with my parents, but like, uh, but also I we grew up in this era of like the West Wing and this kind of lionization of like government as like and and federal government as a solution to like uh to so many ills and um and the idea that that was really like the the way forward um and so that was kind of i would say the idealism and i would say like only like a few generations behind us it became that became a story about technology and big tech so wait we have we have breaking news my phone has just interrupted me to say that north korean leader kim jong-un makes first reported public appearance in three weeks, state media says. That is all I know, but he is apparently uh, uh, not dead. And or he uh, has like uh, somebody that looks like him. Doesn't he have like three people that look like him that wander around? Yeah. 
Like I report, you decide. There you go. Beth, do you have people that look like you that wander around just in case someone tries to off the Rhode Island treasure? Uh, who would do that? I know we're running low on time and and because you broke our, our non-aggression. <gasps> no! <laughs> this, is, this is, I believe, Marty Roth, 2009. Oh my God, you're the worst. That is awesome. <laughs> this other innocent person's face so that I don't even know who that is, but I don't I know who, where is this? Is this, is, Mar is this Mardi Gras? Yes, it's Mardi Gras. What was that? What is going, okay, well, yeah, that so. is a, t you are a terrible person. Thank you. Never inviting you on any show. of my shows again. <laughs> I, I love this. I think, <laughs> I think Kate, uh, we're going to have I'm like to, bright uh, red now. <laughs> we're going to have to like use this as one of our backdrops. For no. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> you can talk afterwards. I can I can hook you up. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I think like a the rotating worst. set of pictures of uh of of Kate is what I need for my Zoom background. Thank you so yeah. much, all of you. <laughs> <laughs> this has been a pleasure. Uh thank you for joining us. Thank you. And, thank you for having um, me. And uh please um uh you know, if you if if we need a GoFundMe for the state of Rhode Island, let us know. We can we can sort of tweet it and we and know people. Someone with a hundred point one point six million Twitter followers was harassing Ben today. We bet oh. he could get some. He could drum up some attention for Rhode deal. Island. Well, I've been I've been showing like I hope you've enjoyed the um like the tourism pitch that I've been making throughout this. And so when things do open up again, come visit. You can take the show on the road. You can like. Well, the show is going to end as soon as when 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 social when when we go back to work. So when this, the, the fun whole begins again, doesn't this look fun? It does. We will. Uh, we 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 can have like a live event, but it would not be in lieu of fun. It would be actual actual fun. fun. Come have but, fun in Rhode Island. But, be, uh, but not Seth, for a little while. Seth, what is yeah. going on with the Bristol parade? That's a tough, that's a sore subject right now. So, so okay, I, so as, sorry, as tell, earlier, tell everyone okay. what the Bristol 4th of July parade is. So it's not just a parade. It's Bristol, Rhode Island has the oldest continuous 4th of July celebration in the country. They've been celebrating every year since I think like 1781 or something like that. Have never missed a year. Um, this year, there cannot be a parade. I think they're trying to figure out a way to do something instead to like keep the street going, but it's it's tough. Bristol is, it's an awesome town, most patriotic town in the country. It, it the, the lines, the, the, the double, double lines on the streets are yeah. red, white, oh, and I blue should have had a back. I should have had a Bristol background. So, yes, you screwed but, um, up. yeah, so it's tough, but you know, we'll, we'll find a way to, to celebrate and to be patriotic from a safe distance, I'm sure. And until then, uh, we will, um, we will uh, please come back and join us. Uh, Kate, do you have a sign off for today? I do in honor of my finger injury and the, I know now know who it was, but it was an anonymous gift of a knife in the mail, which is like, <laughs> seems like the last thing I need. Let's be honest. Yeah. Just that, I flinched a little bit. Oh. <laughs> Kate, sourdough starter, send her, uh, you know, whatever kind of uh, uh, special butter prosciutto special butters, uh, tomatoes to grow in those things. You don't send her knives. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, that's like kind of, it's like, you could send me finger cuts. I really need something send her for bandages. <laughs> bandages. Um, that was actually funny because I had to go and get gauze through the window at the pharmacy and the lady was like, do you want non-stick gauze? And I was like, who wants the stick gauze? Like who wants the stick gauze that sticks to your wound? Like, why is that a thing? And then she gave that to me. I didn't even look at the box until I got home and put it on and it stuck. And it was terrible. Anyway, um, the sign off for today is a quote from Zora Neale Hurston in honor of my, of my, um, in honor of my injury. No, I do not weep at the world. I am too busy sharpening my oyster knife. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. And so, that is also in honor of the Rhode Island guests that we have today. Right. So <laughs> join us tomorrow at, at five. We will have 
uh, from live from the cabin in the woods, we will have Yasha Monk. And he Does he will... have the baby cannons? Ah, uh, the baby cannons are there. Um, Can he fire them for us? Uh, I wouldn't trust Yasha to load a baby cannon. Um, okay. I've never, I've never taught him how. I'm going to tell him you said that. Um, that's fine. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Um, so uh, until then, remember, if you can't have fun in lieu of fun, you can still come and hang out with us. Bye, Ben. Bye, Seth. Take care, guys. Thanks for joining us, Seth.